Chapter 3, Lie Number 3. We already know the stories. American Christianity has been riding the coattails of her ancestors for quite some time, but that ride is over. At some point in the distant past, most, if not all believers, knew what they believed and why they believed it. Sadly, today, most Christians under the age of 40 cannot clearly articulate either one we have become a culture that is largely biblically illiterate. One of the lies that our fathers have inherited is that knowing about the Bible is the same as knowing the Bible. This chapter will focus on a few stories that, at first glance, seem to be old hat or all too familiar. Yet, when we take off the cultural reading glasses that we were given by those who went before us, those who taught us what and how to read and understand the text, we will be astonished at the vastly different result that snaps into focus. People speak in terms of Jesus being a rabbi or closer to a Pharisee. In reality, Jesus was one thing above all others. He was first and foremost a lawyer. Now, when I say lawyer, I do not mean what our culture thinks of as a lawyer. I mean, he was an expert in the law of Moses, the Torah. He was a master of the Torah because he studied it constantly. There are many stories that demonstrate Jesus' brilliance as a Torah teacher, but one stands out as particularly distinct. You have probably heard this story a hundred times, but maybe you've never heard it like this. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The woman caught in the act of adultery. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the Torah, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let us unpack this amazing story and see what jewels the Lord has for us. I would like to share with you the definitions of some of the words that are either misleading or simply carry an assumed meaning. The scribes were not men who walked around writing everything down. A scribe of the Pharisees was a Torah scholar from the faction of the Pharisees as opposed to the Sadducees. Verse 2 says, that some Torah scholars and some prushim, you say in Hebrew, Pharisees, brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. Anyone who knows his Torah would know exactly where this is written. In fact, all Bibles with footnotes cite the following scripture. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. I do not believe that these men want to have Jesus crucified at this stage in the game. That is not to say that he has not upset the apple cart. In chapter 2 of John, Jesus made a direct assault on the Pharisaic traditions of ceremonial hand-washing by using their stone jars which God never sanctioned for vessels to hold about two liters each of wine at a wedding. Pretty bold. 
Then he knocked over the tables of those who exchanged money in the temple as a stinging accusation against the Sadducees who were so corrupt that they had endorsed the extortion of the poorest of the poor. Then he blew Nicodemus's mind who came to Jesus at night for a little higher education. He healed a man on the Sabbath, which the Torah says absolutely nothing against, and then went on to feed well over 5,000 people with bread from heaven. Chapter 7 chronicles the Feast of Sukkot, in which Jesus did the unthinkable and upset not a few of the religious leaders. They do not like him, but there is something intriguing about him. In the current scenario laid out in John chapter 8, in response to their question, what do you say? If Jesus claimed that the Torah had changed in any way or was no longer valid, he was a dead man. If he sided with the Torah, she was a dead woman. He truly was between a rock and a hard place. It was a brilliant move on their part. There are, however, a few glaring problems with this scene. Firstly, the Torah clearly said that both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Yet, who did they bring before Jesus? Only the woman. That is not only not possible, but not permissible either. The very first thing Jesus would have said to them is that without the other offending party, Their charge was baseless, and she should be released from the accusation for failure to follow legal protocol. Many an offender in our own legal system has walked due to a failure to have his or her Miranda rights read to him or her upon arrest. Our question should be, how was she caught in the act of committing adultery, and he was not? Was it the night before? was this classic entrapment. John did not say, but there are very good reasons why John did not say, and also why Jesus did not throw out their case. On the one hand, if he said, yes, the Torah must be obeyed, she dies. On the other hand, if he said, no, the Torah must not be obeyed, he dies, or at least his reputation dies, which essentially kills any chance he has to further teach the people. So, John tells us that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I have heard many creative sermons on what the writing on the ground was all about. Most folks believe that Jesus wrote the sins of the Pharisees on the ground. In turn, when they read the very specific sins they had committed— All left, beginning with the eldest down to the youngest. I do not believe that is what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Jesus, as an expert in Torah, always, always works from the Torah and the prophets, called the Tanakh, before doing or saying anything. There is no doubt in my mind that Jesus was acting out Jeremiah 17. He knew that passage like the back of his hand, and so did the Pharisees. Jesus was so brilliant that instead of quoting the passage, he acted it out. He gave them a picture. What does Jeremiah have to say that Jesus used here in John 8? Let's read Jeremiah 17, 13 and find out. God, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you, will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written on the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. If Jesus is working from the Torah and prophets, he did not write their sins on the earth, dirt, dust, ground. These are all the same word in Hebrew, Eretz. He wrote their names on the ground, beginning with the eldest and down to the youngest, because that is what Jeremiah said would happen. The very fact that he fulfilled what Jeremiah 17, 13 predicted was too much for those men to handle. He was simultaneously fulfilling prophecy 
and accusing them of turning away from the one and only true and living God. They knew it, and there was nothing they could do about it. Wisely, they dropped their stones and left. Now, what did this accomplish? Did it put them to shame? Most assuredly. But was that Jesus' primary intent? No, it was not. How do I know that? Keep reading. Here is where the brilliance of Jesus' expertise in the Tanakh comes shining through like the sun on a cloudy day. Jesus, as well as the scribes and Pharisees, knew that a capital crime must be investigated thoroughly and only on the testimony of two or three witnesses may a person be put to death. Jesus, as well as the scribes and Pharisees, knew that a capital crime must be investigated thoroughly and only on the testimony of two or three witnesses may a person be put to death. If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command, has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them, or to the sun, or the moon, or the stars in the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true, and it has been proved, that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 7. Notice what Jesus said in judgment of the woman. Let he who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. Sin is defined as lawlessness, that is to say, a violation of the Torah. This definition may be found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Every single time that you come across the word sin in Scripture, it means a breaking of the Torah. Our Bibles also say it like this, lawlessness. Lawlessness is literally Torahlessness, against or without Torah. So what Jesus really said is, let he who is without a violation of the Torah be the first to cast a stone at her. Jesus, the mob, and everyone present in the temple knew several things at this point. No man was ever presented in the case. That is a clue. There was no explanation by the author, John, as to why the man was not brought forth. That is another clue. There was no attempt at an explanation by the scribes and the Pharisees for why no man was apprehended and brought before him. Yet another clue. If she really committed adultery in the classic sense, then they have all blatantly and brazenly violated Leviticus 20 and verse 10. No Torah expert, no Pharisee, and no elder of Israel would have dreamed of accusing someone of committing adultery without the other offending party. This woman was not doing what we have all been told that she was doing. This woman was caught in the act of adultery, to be sure. However, she did not commit adultery against a human husband. She committed adultery against the Lord God Almighty. There is only one way in all of Scripture that one can commit adultery against the Almighty. Do you know what that is? Only in the worshiping of idols 
is a human being able to commit adultery against the Lord God. One need only read Hosea 1 verses 6 through chapter 2 verse 20 to see how the Lord is a husband of Israel. And when she worships idols, she commits adultery against him. For more information on idolatry and adultery, see Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 16 through 63. But let us read Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. How does Israel commit adultery with stone and tree? Scripture is clear that Asherah poles made of wood, trees, were not to be worshipped. Altars made of stone to foreign gods like Dagon and Molech were to be destroyed. Israel played the faithless whore when she gave her worship to another husband. Leviticus 20 and verse 10 does not specify that one who commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor is to be stoned. It simply says that both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Yet the Deuteronomy 17 passage above does specify to stone to death the one who commits adultery through idol worship. The Pharisees and scribes bring only the woman to Jesus, and they very clearly quote the Torah, saying that she is to be stoned. The Leviticus passage deals with adultery between human and human. The Deuteronomy passage deals with adultery between human and God. When every single Bible in the English language cites Leviticus 20 and verse 10 in a footnote in John chapter 8, what does that tell you about the scholarship of our English Bibles? at least concerning that passage. At the very least, our footnotes need to be questioned. At most, we dare not give our authority to a committee of scholars who put their two cents worth into a version of the Bible. We can grow and mature from studied and learned men and women, but ultimately, your faith and your beliefs are your responsibility, dear reader, and not the scholars. We said earlier that Jesus was between a rock and a hard place regarding what to say to the clear truth that this woman was caught committing adultery. However, she could not have been committing adultery with another human. That much is clear. She had committed adultery against the Lord God through her worship of idols. If Jesus' judgment were to interpret the Torah conservatively, which is to say strictly or literally, the Torah scholars and Pharisees would have sought the death penalty for the defendant. If Jesus were to interpret the Torah liberally, that is, with mercy, steadfast love, his reputation would most certainly perish, and he would be humiliated as a charlatan and a sinner. So what was he to do? How could he save her life despite the fact that she undeniably committed a capital crime and deserved to die according to the law of Moses? 
he did what any good lawyer does. He interpreted the law liberally, and then he exploited a loophole. Please do not think that a loophole in the law of Moses was by any means accidental. Accidents do not befall our Heavenly Father. This is a loophole that he designed very much with purpose. The same passage we read earlier states in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 17, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. What Jesus the lawyer did was absolutely brilliant. Since he knew he could not contravene a direct commandment in the Torah, he got them to drop the charges. How? He got rid of the witnesses. In Jesus' mind, just like in God's mind, saving her life took precedence over obeying a commandment that would take it. Let us read that one more time. Saving her life took precedence over obeying a commandment that would take her life. Do you realize, dear reader, that that is what Jesus wants to do for each one of us? God said, by the commandments, you shall live. He did not say, by the commandments, you shall die. This is our great advocate our brilliant lawyer, the attorney who will sit in the judgment seat at the end of the age. In closing, verse 10 reads like this. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. I truly believe that the sentiment of verse 11 is not so much, neither do I condemn you, but rather, according to the Torah, I cannot condemn you, for there are no witnesses. Did he squeeze her shoulders, lock eyes with her, and through tears that she caused to well up in him, as a half-smile emerged onto his face, say, Now go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus made a case, a defense for a woman, because saving life is greater than obeying a commandment that takes life. He was able to do this because he knew the Torah inside and out. He also knows God's heart inside and out. The commandments are there that we might live and prosper and have abundant life. Jonah and the Whale A story that conjures up fond childhood memories is the story of Jonah and the Whale. Most Christians have heard this story since they were in cradle roll classes at the local congregation. When we grew up, The story ceased to be something of awe and wonder and became, for many believers, a very far-fetched piece of literary art that had little in common with the real world. Committed Christians believe the story is absolutely true for many reasons, not least of which is simply because it appears in the Bible. Christians, influenced by the increasingly secular culture, want to find how a story like Jonah's could harmonize with what is known about human and whale anatomy and physiology. Atheists dismiss the story as pure fantasy with absolutely zero credibility. We all know how the story goes. Jonah got a call from the Lord to go and preach repentance to the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, a city of malfactors, warmongers, and Israel's number one nemesis. Jonah decided he had better things to do So he went down to Joppa and bought a ticket on the next ship bound for Tarshish, the most distant city in the known world at the time. Big storm hit, Jonah confessed, 
got jettisoned along with the rest of the cargo, began to sink, big fish swallowed him, had a change of heart, got vomited out on dry land, dusted himself off, marched into Nineveh, yelled five words in Hebrew, and the entire city repented then and there. Jonah saved the city from certain doom, but he was furious. God slapped him upside the head verbally, calling attention to the fact that the Ninevites did not know what they were doing. And the story ends. There are a couple of extremely difficult hurdles to get over in Jonah's story if we take it the way our fathers handed it down to us. The first hurdle is the most obvious. Jonah was human and required breathable oxygen to survive. Since Jonah was swallowed by a whale, he ended up in the whale's stomach. Whales breathe oxygen just like humans. Unfortunately, their lungs are not in their stomachs, so Jonah would have been starving for air seconds after being swallowed. Another hurdle is the fact that of the 90 or so species of whale that are known on earth, only the sperm whale has a throat large enough to swallow a human. However, the sperm whale's lungs, regrettably, are also not in their stomachs. So Jonah would be dead in minutes were he swallowed even by a sperm whale. An additional problem would be the digestive acids present in the whale's gastrointestinal tract that are required to digest the hard shells of krill and shrimp, squid beaks, and other bone-like structures present in a whale's normal diet. Jonah would not have lasted three days and three nights in the whale's digestive system without a protective coating and a 72-hour supply of fresh oxygen. We will not even go into the crushing depths to which whales swim, their collapsible lungs, and what would happen to Jonah's lungs even were he breathing when the whale submerged. Now, you are probably sitting there thinking, is this guy for real? Does he not know that God can do miracles? Hello. Yes, the Lord indeed can, did, and does miracles, but he only did one miracle concerning Jonah, and it was not to spare his life by way of fish. Jonah died. Jonah drowned in the sea. This is abundantly clear when we actually go back and read what is written in the first three chapters of Jonah. Chapter 1 and verse 15 simply states that the men picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Most believers assume that as soon as Jonah hit the water, the sea calmed down. But this cannot be ascertained from the text and does not fit with the rest of the events described therein. It is a preconceived notion to place the ceasing of the raging sea instantaneously after Jonah was hurled into it. The flow of the verse in Hebrew is simply sequential. Jonah was thrown into the sea, then the sea ceased from its raging. We do not know at what point the sea calmed down. However, one thing is clear. Jonah sank like a rock. How do we know? The description of the ocean waters in chapter 2 hardly comports with a calm and placid seascape. Chapter 2 verse 3 says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The expression, the heart of, in Hebrew means the middle of or down inside of. Verse 5 of the same chapter goes on to describe his descent. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. 
Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Emphasis mine. My friends, the roots of the mountains are on the ocean floor. Jonah is describing his descent both physically and spiritually. There are a few additional items that we need to enhance in the record of Jonah's death in chapter 2. First, Jonah cried out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol is unequivocally the place of the dead in Hebrew. No living soul is found in Sheol, only the dead. Jonah is in the belly of Sheol when his voice was heard. Jonah died. Verse 4 has Jonah driven away from the Lord's sight. This is another reference to death. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. This is a description of drowning. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is, yet again, a clear picture of Jonah dying. He does not approach that land or get fairly close to that land. Jonah went to the land whose bars closed upon him forever. Death is permanent. That is why the bars lock him in forever. Once he died, he went to Sheol and was no more forever. Verse 6, Yet you brought up my life from the pit. The pit is an idiomatic expression in Hebrew for Sheol, or the grave. This can be found in numerous places in Scripture, such as Job 33, 18, verse 22, verse 24, verse 28, Psalm 28 and verse 1, Psalm 30 and verse 9, Proverbs 1 and verse 12, Isaiah 38, 17 through 18, etc. An interesting parallel to Jonah's deathfall can be found in Exodus 15, verses 4 through 6, when the Lord drowned the Egyptian army pursuing Israel during the Exodus. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. Emphasis mine. It is clear that due to some oceanic phenomena, such as vortices or simply the crushing waves and undercurrents, that Jonah sank to the bottom of the sea. Whether what swallowed Jonah was a whale, a leviathan, or a dagadol, a huge fish, these all tend to feed on or near the ocean floor. And that is exactly where the fish swallowed Jonah. Up from the grave he arose. Now, let us speculate for a minute on what it was that caused the people of Nineveh, from the lowest slave to the king himself, to fast from both food and water, to cover themselves and their animals in sackcloth, and to repent. Did Jonah really walk a third of the way through the great city and utter the equivalent of seven words? Yet 40 days and Nineveh is overthrown. And this caused the great and the small to turn their lives around. Jonah is a Hebrew and a persona non grata in the eyes of the Assyrians. What is it that he said that caused such a commotion? You see... I don't think it was the words of the angry little prophet that caused such a stir. It may have been the fact that a large group of people witnessed a half-digested, bloated, and discolored carcass of a man who was recently burped up onto dry land. It could be that that twisted, 
broken mass of flesh and cloth slowly began to rise, and before their very unbelieving eyes, his flesh, color, and life were miraculously restored to Jonah. It is these potential witnesses that may have laid the groundwork for Jonah's otherwise unimpressive sermonette on repentance. Why was he so angry anyways? It could be that his suicide attempt back on the ship was thwarted by the one and only true and living God. And that really set him off. You know, for the rest of the book, all Jonah wanted to do was die. I wonder if he wished he could have stayed dead rather than see all those Assyrians spared by God's unfathomable mercy and concern for even them. Like looking in a mirror, Jesus likened himself to one prophet. He declared that there would only be one sign to authenticate the veracity of what was about to happen to him on a Roman crucifix. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12 and verse 40. Question. How was Jesus while he was in the grave during those three days and three nights? Answer. He was dead. So, After looking at the story of Jonah from a different perspective, how do you think Jonah was during those three days and three nights in the great fish? Maybe Jonah was dead, just like Jesus. What if Jonah died for three days and three nights and was raised from the dead, and that is why Jesus said, So also will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And just like Jonah was raised from the dead to preach a message of repentance, so was Jesus raised from the dead to preach a message of repentance. Remember, repentance does not mean feeling really bad about what you did. It does not mean to stop doing what you've been doing. It means to return, to come back. And when you return, you feel bad for what you've done. And when you return, you obviously stop doing what you've been doing. You must answer for yourself what you think Jesus meant by return, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Return to what or to whom? Were John and Jesus beckoning people to come back to the Lord and his teachings that he calls Torah? Learning to count to three. Christianity has accepted and passed down a teaching for an epoch. Much of the world celebrates Good Friday every year that we might commemorate when Jesus was laid in the grave. According to Christian understanding of the gospel accounts, and specifically John 20 and verse 1, he was buried before the sun set on Friday evening, and then he rose from the dead Sunday before sunrise. If the long-held Christian beliefs and practices concerning the days and times of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are correct, then how does Christianity reckon Jesus' very clear words that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Last time I checked, Friday evening to Sunday before sunrise was not three days and three nights. If we have difficulty counting to three, that is, harmonizing something as simple as three days and three nights, then what other traditions, teachings, Doctrines and practices have we inherited that have been embraced without question on the authority or tenure of the ones who transmitted them to us in the first place. 
The Parable of the Unshrunk Cloth and New Wine How many times have we read a parable or teaching of Jesus and come away a right bit confused? Personally, it's happened often throughout my life. This teaching of our Master came right on the heels of the healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. Everyone went to Matthew's house, presumably for a new moon celebration, because the first sliver of the new moon had been sighted the evening before. All were present, including Jesus, his disciples, tax collectors and sinners, along with the Pharisees and Torah scholars from Jerusalem. Matthew, who was probably collecting border tolls for the Roman government, was now a full-blown member of Jesus' kingdom posse. At the feast, which would have taken place sometime in late July or early August, the Pharisees and Torah scholars said to Jesus' disciples, Why does he eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors? When Jesus heard it, he answered them, saying, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. That shut them up for the moment. But then John's disciples came to him and asked, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Mark 2 and verse 18. Now, as far as I know, the Torah only commands a person to fast one day per year, and that for 24 hours. This fast is observed on the Feast of the Lord called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It is to be held from the evening of the ninth day of the seventh month and continue until the evening of the tenth day of the seventh month. Now, the question is why the Pharisees, Torah scholars, and even John's disciples were fasting here in the middle of the summer? Well, I have a suspicion that they are all following somebody's instructions. It seems they are following a law, but it isn't the Almighty's. This may be yet another example of everyone, even John's disciples, blindly following the note of the Pharisees, the man-made additions to and subtractions from God's Torah. Jesus then answers their question with a question in perfect Jewish fashion. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Mark 2, verses 19 and 20. And here is where Jesus loses most of the readers of this twofold parable. I will use the parallel account found in Luke 5. No man puts a piece of a new garment upon an old. If he does, then both the new makes a tear, and the piece that was taken out of the new does not agree with the old. And no man puts new wine into old bottles. If he does, the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also, having drunk old wine, straightway desires new, for he says, the old is better. What is going on here? Well, this is where two worldviews intersect. If Jesus was really doing what Christianity has been told that he was doing for as long as we can all recall, then one meaning comes out of this double parable. But... If Jesus was doing exactly the opposite of what Christianity has proclaimed Jesus to be doing, then a completely unforeseen result comes to light. I recently looked up this parable in a New International Version study Bible. You know, the big one with all the footnotes written by Bible scholars. I'm not sure, and you can check me on this, but if I were a betting man, I'd bet a lot of money that the ESV, KJV, RSV, and every other V study Bible out there has similar footnotes and explanations for what was going on here. 
If Jesus had come to change things up now that he's in charge, then all of his new teachings and new interpretations should be understood as the new or unshrunk cloth. What happens when that new teaching meets the old way of doing things? Man, it makes the tear even worse. Not only does the new cloth shrink and pull away from the old, making it worse, but the new will never match the old. And how about that new wine? When Jesus tries to pour his alleged new teachings into those old, fuddy-duddy Pharisees who are hanging on to that sad and sorry old law and old way of doing things, he blows them up, just like new wine bursts old wineskins that have lost their plasticity. This is a paraphrase for what the study Bible footnotes all say. The new cloth and new wine are Jesus' new message of the kingdom of God. They are his new gospel. Yet there is another way of understanding both Jesus and this parable. Jesus didn't bring anything new to the table. Jesus was beckoning people back to the old ways, the ancient paths. Jesus was committed to demolishing the new ways that man had constructed to, quote, improve, end quote, upon God's old ways. One by one, teaching after teaching, miracle after Messiah-confirming miracle, Jesus knocked down and overturned the Pharisees' power of control by showing that they had dishonored God by adding to and diminishing from his eternal commands. Does it not ring true that Jesus was speaking of the Torah and his allegiance to the Torah as the old garment? The first thing men do is tear something out of the Torah. Then, in an attempt to mend the tear, they grab a new teaching, a new application, or a new way of doing things, put it on that trusted old garment, and call it good. In Jesus' day, It was the Pharisees who were making alterations to God's unchangeable garment. The folks who have read the New Testament many times key in on something right away. The New Testament isn't new. The entire thing is looking back into the First Testament. 99.9% of the quotes are taken directly out of the Torah and the prophets. Sure, Paul quotes a Greek philosopher or two, and Jude alludes to the book of Enoch, but outside of that, it's all First Testament all the time. This book is entitled, Have Our Fathers Inherited Lies?, which is a prophecy taken out of Jeremiah 16.19. Read Jeremiah 16.16-21. Behold, I am sending for many fishers declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols, and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the Gentiles come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might. And they shall know that my name is Yahweh. First, he will send for many fishers. Who were the first four disciples Jesus called? Fishermen. For what did Jesus say they would be fishing? men. Then Jeremiah prophesies that the nations or Gentiles will come to the Lord and say, our fathers 
have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Now, why would Gentiles come to the Lord in the first place? They are a foreign people with foreign gods. Why would they declare that their fathers have inherited nothing but lies? Lies about what? What connection is there between, one, the house of Israel, who was scattered to all the nations, and two, the nations coming to exclaim how they have inherited lies? Is this a prophecy that also concerns the modern age? Has Christianity done to that old garment the very same thing that the Pharisees did? Has it altered the garment with something new, something that does not agree, and in so doing, has it ruined how the old is to be understood and twisted the new in the process? Jesus says that no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new will pull away from the old and a worse tear is made. Notice that the KJV says that the piece that was taken out of the new will not agree with the old. Our modern versions clean it up for us by saying it will not match, but when they do this, our versions lose the subtlety of saying that the two will not agree. Looking up all three passages, Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5 on Blue Letter Bible, one is able to see the meaning behind each word. One of the words for new in Matthew 9 and verse 16 is actually the Greek word agnophos. Agnophos means unfold. You can't even find this word in a dictionary, folks, because it is so old. It comes from the vocation or job of a fuller. A fuller was a person who worked on the production of cloth from sheep's wool, specifically in the capacity of cleansing freshly shorn wool to remove any residual dirt, oils, and other filth. Cloth that was unfulled had yet to be cleaned or shrunk. We said before that this is a double parable. I believe Jesus was, once again, working directly from the Torah. This time, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 32. Moses had just given a summary to Israel of what to do and what not to do regarding how to obey the Lord and live according to the way he had instructed them. The last verse of chapter 12 says, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. When the Lord's commands are either taken out of context or removed altogether, a tear is made and some patchwork is in order. That is, in my opinion, the first parable of the unshrunk cloth. The second parable is the other part of Deuteronomy 12, adding to the commands. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is better. Luke 5, verses 37 through 39. This parable is about adding to the Torah. When men try to do this, it not only destroys the new wine or new teachings, but damages the old as well. Listen to Jesus describe this exact process of damaging the old and the new by introducing something new in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions, or talk a note, of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your talk a note? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, 
And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. The new way to keep God's ancient command, honor your father and mother, was to take the resources that would have been used to care for his or her elderly parents and dedicate them to the temple. Korban comes from the Hebrew word karva, which means to draw near. It is also a word used to describe the sacrifices to be brought to the Lord in the temple. So, here, the man-made alteration of the ancient command not only broke God's Torah by disobeying what he clearly said about honoring father and mother, but the new teaching was untenable as well. Why? Because God never authorized resources to be given to one that he already dedicated to another. The person who obeyed the Pharisaical way of keeping the command was actually stealing from his own parents that which God rightfully gave to them and giving it to the temple, which supposedly secured for himself favor from God by giving a large donation. It's a total mess. God would not accept that donation, condone stealing, or allow it to be given as a holy korban. Neither would he allow the person's father or mother not to be honored in the first place. When humans put new wine into an old vessel, that is, when they try and cram their new teachings into the old Torah, they not only ruin the new teachings, but they damage the way the Torah is to be understood and carried out. But you know what my favorite part of the parable in Luke 5 is? The end. And no one, after drinking the old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Luke 5.39 No one who has the freedom to obey the Torah of Moses will, in the next breath, desire the man-made doctrines. Why? Because the old is better. The old is better. These are Jesus' words. Was this not Jesus' point? Was this not what Jesus had been driving at all along? God's unaltered Torah was much better than man's newfangled concoction. Did Jesus himself not state that very thing? This chapter has attempted to demonstrate that we Christians think we know what the New Testament says. We think we know the stories that we've all heard a thousand times. Maybe we find little depth with them, because on their own, torn from their true context, there is not enough there to sustain all our doubts and questions, beliefs, and understandings. Without the First Testament, specifically Deuteronomy 17 and Jeremiah 3, informing the story of the woman caught in adultery, there is no way to understand that she was worshiping idols. That's the adultery she was committing. And likewise, there is no way to know what really happened to Jonah without Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. Without Jesus' Jonah equation... We are left with a cute story about a little man who spent 72 hours alive inside of a fish only to be burped up on dry land and go on about his day. Dare I say, we couldn't possibly understand Jesus, his life and teachings without a very firm understanding of the Torah and the prophets that not only heralded his coming, but clearly indicated what he would teach and what he would do. One of the lies that our fathers have inherited is that we can know Jesus purely through the New Testament. This is a glaring falsehood and one of the most destructive lies that we have inherited. Not one person in the New Testament ever derived 
one single fact about the Messiah using the New Testament. Yet what has Christianity done for the last 1,700 years? We only go to the New Testament to learn about Jesus. Christianity will be held accountable for her beliefs and practices. Every single one of us needs to ask ourselves often, what am I doing and why am I doing it? Is the reason that we are seeing a bankruptcy emerging in Christianity due to the fact that she's been withdrawing from an account that she claimed has been closed for almost 2,000 years? The Torah and the Prophets.